Hey, welcome to the Life 2.0 podcast. I'm John St. Augustine. It's a Memorial Day special edition, so let's get right to it. Thanks for joining me on Memorial Day weekend. Uh, it is a Saturday here in Chicago. The sun is out and it's a beautiful morning and uh, there are many um, activities planned for this weekend. It's kind of waiting to see how that all rolls out uh, this first big holiday, as it were. Uh, this is on some people's agenda, the kickoff to summer, and on other people's agenda, it is a reminder of what's been lost. And I wanted to take this show, I, ha- I-, I literally had a wrestle with myself a little bit this morning mentally because part of me wants to rail against the machine a bit, the retail machine that uses these holidays as a way to somehow entice people to buy more mattresses, tires, television sets, refrigerators, fill in the blank. I don't get it. Never have, never will. Um, I, I just, it, it boggles my mind uh, that there's many people that don't understand what Memorial Day is about. Before I get any further into this, let me just clarify uh, and I guess that's just something that is it going to be a constant reminder to people. You would think in the 21st century with all our access to information that we would understand the difference between Veterans Day and Memorial Day. There is a difference. Uh, Veterans Day is the time that we recognize people like your host here, someone who has served in the military and survived, right? So that is for Veterans Day, people who have served in all the armed forces and came home safely and hung up their uniform, whether they did two years, four years, or 40 years, that's Veterans Day. That's when you go to all the people that are, you know, been around, and you, your uncle and your aunt, and people put their time in, and you say, thank you for, for your service. And they can still answer Veterans Day. Memorial Day is not that. Memorial Day is, uh, is something much bigger, quite frankly, in my opinion, than Veterans Day. Well, look, as a veteran, I'm saying that. This is the day... That should be set aside and is set aside. And the idea was to set it aside for the families of the fallen, for those who have given their last full measure, to remember them. This isn't about, on one hand, uh, you know, staying inside and having a, you know, a wallowing in grief, which many of them will do anyway. But if you're going to celebrate, you should at least remember why. And there are so many people that I know that have no idea. They just think Memorial Day is the kickoff to summer because we had nothing better to do. It's not. It's more than that. So again, please, as we, uh, if you do nothing else from this podcast, and I hope you do, understand the Veterans Day is for those of us who have served and have come home, and you can thank them on Veterans Day in November. Memorial Day is the day that we remember those who didn't come home. Big difference. And so on one hand, I wanted to go on this whole rant about the Memorial Day shopping experience and and how retailers have just hijacked this thing as they do most things. And I won't ever stop that. You know, that's not going to, no one's going to listen to this podcast and retail go, yeah, he's right. Let's stop all retail spending on Memorial's Day. So that's not going to happen. But what I'd like to see happen, which would be kind of a novel idea, is somebody listening to this that owns a business and says, you know what, on Memorial Day, we're not going to be open in, 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 honor of those who couldn't come and buy a refrigerator, for example. So the other option would be to say 100% of our profits today go to 
gold star families or memorials or something of the like. And can you imagine, though, if you, if you turned on your television and whoever the, the tire shop or the appliance shop or the famous mattress shop, I guess they sell more mattresses on Memorial Day than any other. I don't get it. But if they said, this year, we're not going to be open. We're, we're going to just remember those who have given their, their lives in, in defense of our country, and we will open on Tuesday. Have a, have a good day. I'd be, I'd be back there the next day and, and double their sales, you know? So I am a little bit scattered more than usual. It's early in the morning here. Uh, had a, a measured amount of coffee, but I probably should have more. And knowing what I wanted to talk about and what I'm going to talk about has me a little bit off kilter. On a, on a, and, and what I'm concerned about is my, uh, my emotional state talking about these, uh, these people that I am going to mention here in the show. And, uh, because I know, uh, two of their parents to some degree. And, um, the other two are, uh, names that I know in my life. Uh, and, and thinking about, you know, how long they've been gone, how old they would be, what their lives might've been like, uh, has me a bit scattered. So you have to bear with me. I don't feel my normal <laughs> professional broadcasting self at all doing this show. I feel like I'm sitting somewhere, uh, just contemplating it all. And there happens to be a microphone in front of me and most of it I can't figure out, never will. So I just know that going in. The second broadcast I ever did for Life 2.0 was uh, Memorial Day in 2018. I had my longtime friend and former Chicago Panthers semi-pro football teammate, Greg Daniels on. And we were talking about his son, Nicholas. And we were sitting at a bar, which is called On the Rocks. And the only reason that Greg and Debbie Daniels own that bar is because Nick asked his pop, you know, and said to him, if anything happens to me, take the death money. That's what the, the payoff uh, f- that you get from the government in exchange for the life of your son or daughter and buy the bar. And so I don't know how many people, I, I would hope most of the people who go to On the Rocks un- understand why they're even there. I mean, as far as the, the bar, uh, but I'm sure that there, I can't imagine walking in there and I've been in there many times walking in, knowing the only reason I own this is because my son's not here. Uh, that'd be very difficult. And so anyway, Greg and I had that conversation back in 2018 and, and I have so much audio in my vault that I couldn't find that raw audio to include into this. So you should take a note and go back to the 2018 shows and go all the way to the last page in the second to the last uh, podcast on the bottom of the page is with Greg Daniels. And we sat there on a Saturday in, in the bar, just the two of us, talked for a couple hours uh, or more. And you have to understand, uh, Greg Daniels is not a guy who does this. He's, uh, uh, he's, uh, he's a very private guy who, uh, but also once, once he started opening up a little bit, uh, gave me a better picture of the difficulty of all this. And so I wanted to, uh, to start this show talking about, uh, Marine Lance Corporal Nicholas Daniels. Assigned to third combat engineer battalion, the first Marine division, first Marine expeditionary force, 29 Palms, California. He was born in September of 1986. Nick Daniels was outgoing and friendly from an early age. 
The Elmwood Park native graduated from St. Patrick High School in 2004, where he played as a linebacker on a football team. Uh, his former high school coach said that he was the kind of impact player who lived and breathed football. I'm pretty sure he got that from his old man. Uh, Nick's love of football led him to return to his alma mater in 2008 and 2009 to coach the freshman team, and it was his love of teamwork and camaraderie that led him to pursue a military career soon after. He enlisted in the Marines in 2010, reported for training September 3, 2010, and left for his first tour of duty in Afghanistan only 16 days later when he was serving as a combat engineer. Although committed to his career, it was his family that he always put first. As the oldest of four children, he took it as a personal challenge to always watch out for his younger siblings and to show them how much each of them meant to him. I always aspire to be like him, Lonnie Daniels, Nick's brother, said. He's really funny, probably one of the funniest guys. He really had a good attitude with everybody. Nick's infectious smile and laughter left a lasting impact on almost everyone he met. His legacy of service lives on in his family and his friends and those he coached and those who continue to serve the community in his honor. He was a fun-spirited person to be around. He always had a big smile on his face, no matter what was going on, as Aunt Sandra said. Nick was a strong man inside and out. He was so loved by many and is now missed by many. Lance Corporal Nicholas Daniels was 25 years old when he was killed in action on November 5th, 2011. After being at uh, Greg and Debbie's bar more than a few times, I learned about Ryan David Jopek. And I think uh, I first connected with uh, his dad, Brian, on Facebook. I, somehow all that happened years ago. I'm not really sure. And if you go back to the Memorial Day in 2019, uh, you'll see an interview with Brian Jopek about his son and about all this Memorial Day stuff and how he sees it. And once again, it's another piece of audio I couldn't find. So your homework assignment is to go to back to the 2018 and 2019 Memorial Day interviews and, and put your ears on that when you get a chance over the weekend as well. This was written by Brian, who was Ryan's father and printed in the Lakeland Times. In 2010, I was in what turned out to be my next to last year of service in an Army National Guard career of just over 21 and a half years. I joined in 1990. Initially, the Kansas Army National Guard transferred me in early 2002 to the Wisconsin Army National Guard. My time in service included a deployment to Mosul, Iraq in 2004, another deployment to the U.S. Naval Station Guantanamo Bay, Cuba in 2008. In late 2003, my oldest son, Ryan, joined the Wisconsin Army National Guard, and while I was in Iraq during 04, Ryan graduated from high school in Merrill and then attended basic combat training and advanced individual training at Fort Knox, Kentucky. In August 2005, eight months following my return from Iraq, Ryan, by then a cavalry scout with the 32nd Infantry Brigade Combat Team, was deployed to a base on the Kuwait-Iraq border. From there, his unit conducted convoy security operations into Iraq. By July 2006, the unit set to replace Ryan's unit was boots on the ground and left seat, right seat missions were being conducted. Later in July, the night of July 23rd to be exact, I received a phone call. It was Ryan calling me from Iraq. He wanted to let me know that he had volunteered to go on a convoy mission to Mosul, where I was in 2004. Ryan said he'd been trying to get there the whole deployment and his slot opened up, and he decided to take it instead of continuing his preparations to come home with the rest of his unit. As it turned out, that was the last time I ever heard my oldest son's voice. 
and ever heard him say, I love you, Dad. A little more than a week later, as the convoy up-armored Humvee was making its way back to the base of the Kuwait-Iraq border, the vehicle was hit with an IED, and my oldest son, Ryan David Jopek, was gone. The other three soldiers in the Humvee with the replacement unit survived the blast. That was August 2006. Four years later in 2010, I was, as mentioned at the outset, in the twilight of my Army Guard career. Medical problems with their roots in my return from Iraq had by then made me non-deployable and non-retainable. So for much of 2010, I spent a lot of time in the Middleton VA Hospital in Middleton, Wisconsin for testing and so forth as the long drawn out process to make final determination of my future in the Army Guard by higher ups played itself out. It was on one of these visits that I had a younger guy in his mid-twenties approach me in one of those hospital lobbies. He had recognized the name Jopek on the side of the ball cap I was wearing. Are you Ryan Jopek's dad, he asked. The first thing I thought was, wow, it's a small world. Yes, I am, I told him. The young man proceeded to tell me how he had originally been in Ryan's unit in Merrill and was supposed to deploy with him. However, he got sick or hurt or something, I don't remember what it was, and whatever the case, he couldn't deploy at the time, but it was later assigned to the unit that replaced Ryan's. He told me that when he got to the base where Ryan's unit was, he was glad to see Ryan, and since it was getting near the end of the deployment for Ryan, the young man said he remembered how Ryan would be sitting on a picnic table with a group of soldiers from the new unit gathered around asking him questions about missions and would he share what he knew. That's ultimately how he ended up going on that last mission. Not only did he want to see at least part of northern Iraq like I did, and he did do that on the Mosul trip in 2006, but he was on that mission to help the new guys through as far as procedure and protocol on a convoy security mission. The young man got a thoughtful look on his face. He was a hell of a guy, Mr. Joe Peck. He said, you should be proud. I know I miss him. That is, I guess, in retrospect, how I'd like my son to be remembered by helping others. And that's what he did when he could, whether it was answering a fellow soldier's questions and showing them the convoy security thing or just being at home helping his grandparents and Annie go with yard work. It was in my boy's nature. Ryan David Jopek, Cavalry Scout Sergeant, served late 2003 to August 1st, 2006. Iraq Conflict, Army National Guard, 2nd Battalion, 127th Infantry Regiment. Killed in action August 2nd, 2006, in Tikrit, Iraq. Ryan David Jopek was 20. Yesterday, I was uh, out running some errands in the city, and I happened to go past my uh, former high school on the northwest side, and not far from that school is a place called Six Corners, and it's under construction, renovation, that kind of stuff, and I stopped, and I thought about this new building going up, because my dad used to work in the bank that's now being rebuilt there for the umpteenth time, and uh, I had to go stop and, and see my uh, my cousin, the Sarge, which I'll get to him in just a minute, but as I was coming down Irving Park Road, I'm making a left-hand turn to get into the area where he lives. I recognized a familiar name. There's Don Sansone Drive or Don Sansone Way. This name, Don Sansone, was a memorial uh, street sign. And it reminded me of uh, a name that I've heard uh, at Shures for years of Don Sansone. And he was an uh, outstanding athlete, an outstanding human being by all accounts. And uh, just weeks after he deployed into Vietnam, he was killed in action. 
and I couldn't find much on him online. Uh, he's known by his name at the school, uh, but I, I just wanted to include him in this um, and, and some remembrances that were left for him uh, over the years by the people that knew him the best. Uh, this, if you go to the, uh, the Wall of Faces, which is an is a incredible uh, memorial and reminder and resource for people, if you're looking for anybody who's been lost in the Vietnam War, uh, it's the, the Wall of Faces, and you can type in a name and, and find out uh, about uh, just everybody that, that's name is on that wall. It's, uh, it's bittersweet to say the least. Uh, but I was glad to come across this photo of Don, and uh, it was his boot camp photo from the Marine Corps Recruitment Depot in San Diego, Platoon 3328. He earned the title U.S. Marine on November 28th, 1966. And so, as I said, there's are these uh, people have just left notes there. You can leave notes uh, on this page. Donnie, it's been 50 years today since you were killed in Vietnam. We served together at the time of your death. I was just a few miles away. We were friends, played football at Shures together, joined the Marines and served in Vietnam. Semper Fi, my brother. So many sweet, sweet memories. I miss you so much. Love, Susie. Semper Fi, Marine. You are missed. It's been 10 years since my last post here. You were killed 46 years ago today. I cannot believe it's been that long. I will never forget you, Donnie. I miss and I love you. Although we never met personally, I want to thank you, Donald Frank Sansone, for your courageous and valiant service, faithful contribution, and most holy sacrifice given to the greater good for our country. This is all the way back from 2003. Well, it's been 36 years since you gave your life for this country. I stopped by your house tonight and parked in front and had a hot dog for both of us. I miss you. I'll never forget you. I went to high school with Don at DePaul Academy in Chicago. He was my best friend on the football team. One time in practice, we hit our helmets together so hard they both cracked. We laughed our asses off. And finally, I'll never forget all the great times we had in school and the great times at the Y dances. The last letter I received from you was only a few weeks before you were killed. You begged me not to go to Vietnam. I did go to the Nam, but I was lucky and made it back. As long as I live, I will never forget you. Your friend, John. Donald F. Sansone, Marine Corps, Lance Corporal, was 19 years old. A few moments ago, I mentioned uh, my, my cousin, the Sarge, Rich Hoffman. And uh, he is one of those guys you would thank on Veterans Day because he did two tours in Vietnam and came home, brought a lot of shrapnel with him and Agent Orange and other assorted maladies uh, that you would pick up in the jungle. Uh, he has always been and always will be a hero to me. I have such vivid memories of him being in Vietnam and getting letters from him that were, you know, a month behind for wherever he used to be and, and reading these letters. And I had this huge map of Vietnam on my wall in, in my bedroom. And I would track as best I could where I thought he was and he'd come home and on leave and such. And I can vividly remember him uh, sitting in our kitchen asking my dad for a pair of long nose pliers 
and then him sitting there pulling shrapnel out of his leg that had worked to the surface. He was the toughest guy and still is uh, that I've ever known. So I was all, going over to see him. He had left me a, a little care package out there, which I have over here. <laughs> he got me. See, I'm, I believe I'm the only person in the family who was in the Coast Guard. And while they, we all, all the services kind of, you know, bite on each other a little bit, he's always uh, been so respectful of my service in the Coast Guard. You know, we're the armed service and more. We're going out when everybody else is coming in. And uh, we have given our fair share uh, as well in conflict. Uh, but I'm the only one who's ever been in the Coast Guard. And I was in aviation, which even makes it even smaller uh, kind of group of people. But he had left me a, a care package of some sort. I'll get to that maybe a little bit later. Uh, but uh, one of the most challenging uh, things that he and I have ever talked about, and we also did this on the air in a former podcast, was about um, his time in Vietnam and, uh, and Kurt Duncan, who was his uh, corpsman, uh, that was so integral to their success and their survival in Vietnam, and that he was killed um, in Vietnam. Uh, and uh, how that affected Rich and all the guys in the platoon. Uh, so I, he doesn't know I'm doing this, but I, I wanted to read this. I want to put this. I wanted to read this uh, article, and uh, this is uh, in the Union Times, and uh, I didn't know this was in there. I don't know if he knows this is in there, but it's in there. Kurt Duncan was a popular kid in the Princeton High School class of 1965. In the fall of 64, he was elected homecoming king and reigned over ceremonies with Queen Bonnie Matz, his girlfriend. He was in the band, was also active in his church youth group, and about 13 months later, he enlisted in the U.S. Navy, a normal thing to do then, among young people in the Princeton area as the United States was getting more involved in Vietnam and Princeton being in Minnesota. Kurt was trained as a hospital corpsman and in December of 67 was assigned to a U.S. Marine battalion in Vietnam. As I mentioned less than a year later, on September 19, 1968, with only two months remaining as tour of duty, he was killed when the vehicle he was riding in hit a landmine. He was buried at Oak Knoll Cemetery 11 days later. The shiny new black car that he had asked his father to order for him was never to be his. Kurt was one of three Princeton men killed in Vietnam. Others were Steve Nelson and Mike Matheson, also Princeton high school graduates. Many others from Princeton served. Kurt's parents, Frank and Irene Duncan, moved to Fargo the same year Kurt died and lived there until moving to Maple Grove in 1986. They have not missed a Memorial Day observance in Princeton in the 33 years since Kurt's three brothers also making the trip during many of those years. Frank and Irene, who have known each other basically all their lives, are a remarkable couple. They come from J Jacobson, Minnesota. Both served in World War II. Irene is an Air Corps nurse and Frank is a pilot. All Frank did was fly about 130 missions as a fighter pilot First 55 of them in England and then 75 more in the China-Burma area after a little rest at home. Uh, the writer talks about getting to know him when he was a supervisor at a job that this, this uh, reporter had. And, uh, but it was very difficult to pry out information about him, that about his time in the service. As many of those old guys do. They just don't talk about it. The story could have ended there, but it doesn't. And it goes on to talk about, out of the clear blue sky, a letter came from Rich Hoffman, the Sarge, a member of Kurt's platoon who lives in Chicago. He followed up with another three weeks later after the Duncans replied, and then Robert Uteritz of New York State, also a platoon member, sent a letter as well. 
Uteritz, expressing concern about opening up old wounds, said he thought the Duncans would want to know that Kurt is still being remembered to this day. He told me about being on a minesweep that day and that he and Kurt would often walk together on them. That day, because of a bad sunburn from the day before, Kurt was riding in a truck and Uteritz jumped on the other side and they talked. Uteritz called over radio to the company that the road was open and that the truck could turn around. We just made a terrible mistake, he wrote. We forgot to sweep our truck turnaround area. The VC had placed a mine there the night before. Kurt was killed instantly, Uteritz wrote. Kurt was my friend. I still think about him often and I wish I had made him get out of that truck. I know how bad it hurt as I too have lost a son. I cry for them both and I pray for them both as well. Hoffman, the Sarge, was the first to write in July and then contacted Uteritz and other platoon members. He told the Duncans about being exposed to the daily grind of war, not like they see in the movie, but real war, where we learn what life and death was really about. Kurt had to administer spinal meningitis shots every three months to platoon members, but Hoffman wrote, he always put them at ease. I trusted him, he wrote, telling about Kurt removing a painful ingrown toenail after Kurt popped up in a couple of beers for Hoffman. He was well-liked by the kids in the nearby village, always dishing out candy and extra sea rations, the Sarge wrote. He was like Santa Claus to them. And then the Sarge wrote about the day Kurt was killed. I remember that day like it was yesterday. He heard a boom late in the day and saw smoke, figuring the platoon had detonated a minor booby trap, a common occurrence. A few minutes later, he found out what had happened. I was so angry for what happened to Kurt, Hoffman wrote. I remember standing in the village shouting for someone, anyone to come out and start to shoot grenades into the village. I kept shooting and shouting and yelling until some of the platoon came out and got me. I hurt that day for Kurt, his family, and for the platoon that needed him. Hoffman said he's had trouble sleeping while in Vietnam and after that kept trying to figure out why he was told to stay back at the bridge and why he wasn't with Kurt on that truck. I can't count the number of times I wanted to try and contact Kurt's family and talk to them, but I didn't have the nerve, he told them. Hoffman visited the Vietnam Wall in Washington, D.C. a few years ago and told the Duncans he touched Kurt's name on the wall. And under Kurt's name was another name that really shook him up. Richard Hoffman, USMC Corporal from Illinois, killed in the same province on the same day as Kurt. I wonder sometimes if God chose the wrong Richard Hoffman to die that day, he would tell me, and write. Kurt Duncan was born September 8, 1947 and died September 19, 1968, just a few days after his 21st birthday. As I mentioned a little bit ago, uh, I spent four years in, in the Coast Guard and proud to serve there. And when I stopped to see the Sarge to pick up that little care package he had for me, uh, and I had this off, all splayed out here in my office, he had given me this metal uh, sign, I guess you could call it, with the, uh, the racing stripe and the emblem of the Coast Guard on it, and a couple helicopters like the ones I flew in. One of them is hand-carved wood, and he actually painted the 1446 uh, number on it, just like the ones that we flew in back then. So I was so... Uh, taken by that, as well as some patches for the POWs and, and uh, the Fallen. And I have this stuff sitting here. I'm just, uh, it's a long time ago. Uh, but it was so neat to see that and get that. And then it reminded me, of course, when I did this podcast on Memorial Day 2021, to uh, also mention uh, Petty Officer Third Class, Nate Bruckenthal. 
On April 24, 2004, while serving as part of Coast Guard Patrol Forces Southwest Asia aboard the USS Firebolt, Petty Officer 3rd Class Bruckenthal, a damage controlman, and two U.S. Navy sailors were killed in the line of duty while conducting maritime intercept operations in the northern Arabian Gulf. Bruckenthal and six other coalition sailors attempted to board a small boat near the uh, oil terminal there in Iraq. As they boarded the boat, it exploded. It had been set with explosives. Bruckenthal later died that day from the wounds he sustained in the explosion. He was the first Coast Guardsman uh, to be killed in action since Vietnam. And for his actions, Nate Bruckenthal was posthumously awarded the Bronze Star Medal with the Combat V. His Bronze Star Medal citation reads as follows. The President of the United States of America takes pride in presenting Bronze Star Medal with Combat V to damage controlman 3rd Class Nathan Brockenthal, United States Coast Guard, for heroic achievement in connection with combat operations against the enemy while serving as a boarding officer with the USS Firebolt and the United States Coast Guard Law Enforcement Detachment 403 during Operations Iraq Freedom on 24 April 2004. While patrolling the security zone around the Al-Basari oil terminal in Iraq tutorial waters, Petty Officer Bruckenthal detected a small unidentified boat proceeding towards the oil terminal. After maneuvering the tram around to screen the oil terminal, Petty Officer Bruckenthal approached the small boat to investigate its actions. As the boarding team drew alongside, the attacker on board the vessel, realizing it had been discovered, detonated explosives packed on board, mortally wounding Petty Officer Bruckenthal. That explosion alerted all in the area to an ongoing coordinated attack, allowing security forces to destroy two additional explosive-laden vessels, thereby preventing mass casualties, irreversible environmental damage, and the destruction of the Iraq people's major economic lifelines. By his zealous initiative, courageous actions, and exceptional dedication to duty, Petty Officer Bruckenthal reflected great credit upon himself and upheld the highest traditions of the Coast Guard and the United States Naval Service. Nate Bruckenthal was 24 years old. I've had a hard time chopping through all of those stories and names. Uh, I'm not sure why it affects me as much as it does, uh, where this, um, this line in the sand, for lack of a better term, is for me, where I, d- I just don't understand uh, how easy it is to replace um, a, a holiday like Memorial Day with turning into some sort of a sales bonanza. It's just, it's just beyond my comprehension. Uh, no more than uh, video games that uh, purport war as something fun to do, and you can die as many times as you want and come back over and over and over again. It gives a false sense of uh, what war and conflict is all about. But that's for another time, another rant. I've done enough of those over the years, that's for sure. What this is about today is just telling the stories of a few men who uh, gave their lives, signed on the dotted line, knowing they might not come home and did not. I wanted to close out this podcast with these words from the Gettysburg Address, uh, November 19th, 1863, by Abraham Lincoln. It is for us, the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead, we will take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion 
that we are highly resolved that these dead shall not have died in vain. That this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, and that the government of the people, and by the people, and for the people, shall not perish from the earth. For Nicholas Daniels, Ryan David Jopek, Kurt Duncan, Don Sansone, and Nate Bruckenthal, when you go out this weekend and kick back and have a beer, throw some hot dogs and burgers on there and get ready to kick off summer, think of those names just for a second. How much they would have given and have given for you to have that opportunity. <laughs>